Greetings and welcome to Office Hours. If you are new here and you want to learn a little bit more about what we do, head over to officehours.global. Our first hour, we answer your questions on media and digital productions. And our second hour is typically something that we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we'll be talking about transforming theater with e with Igor Goliak. So get those questions in early. And speaking of questions, Robert, let's get this party started. Thank you, Liberty. We begin with Bo Cordell, Charleston, South Carolina. How do you manage YouTube viewing? It seems harder than I think it should be to manage videos I want to watch. Sometimes they get downloaded, sometimes added to a playlist, sometimes added to a queue or saved. Please help me tame the madness. <laughs> Courtney. Well, what I do is I have my YouTube account, which I sign into, and I have a player called SmartTube Next, which eliminates all the ads. Great thing. And, um, uh, and, it, and it still lets you log into your YouTube account. It has a whole lot of settings on it. And I think the regular YouTube player you can do this on, too, is turn off the autoplay next so it doesn't just get into a string of playing the next and serving up and serving up and serving up and serving up. And that way you can bounce around when you when it finishes, it stops and you can look for something else to play rather than have it serve up what it thinks you want to see next. Uh, so that gets you out of the rut. The other thing is to just sign out and come in anonymously. Just go to the YouTube player and don't log in and you won't get your, uh, you know, the stuff that's tailored to all your searches. So you'll just get random what's popular, what's most, you know, what's trending, etc. And uh, maybe your subscriptions, if you want to go to your subscriptions, you have to log back in. But that way, I do that every now and then just to see what the rest of the world is looking at to, to get me out of the silo that YouTube is serving up to me. Because it tends to serve up the same thing over and over and over every day, and it gets kind of boring. So log out or develop a second personality, a second YouTube account with a different name, and sign in with that and uh, look at different stuff on that account. And that way it'll serve up that kind of stuff for you. So you can kind of manipulate the, uh, the bot to automatically serve you different stuff to keep the variety up. Go ahead, Nigel. So I guess the answer to me here is it depends what device I'm on because it's an inconsistent interface. So if I'm viewing it on the web, I'm going to get one experience, but I often view it on my iPad and I have to tell you, I pay for the, um, I pay for the subscription. I don't get the ads and I fly quite a lot. I have to tell you, I more than anything on an airplane now, I'm watching YouTube. So here's what happens. I find something. If I want to watch it later when I'm flying, I download it onto my iPad. If it's a video that I think I'm going to, there's a crumpet recipe I would really like to make. I don't know when I'm going to make it, but I've decided crumpets are something I should learn to make. So I have saved that, or I've liked it, which gives me the reference. But the third thing I do is I use subscriptions. If there's someone I'm vaguely interested in or a subject I'm vaguely interested in, I add a subscription. And I found the more subscriptions I add, the better mix. But like Courtney says, if the same things recur a lot. So it depends on the device. I download to my iPad, I watch and save online or on the TV. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, probably about 80% of my viewing is YouTube at this point. I mean, so I, I watch most of what I watch on YouTube. And I don't mean YouTube TV. That's the, the other 15%. And then there's like 5% of my viewing is done on some of the other streamers. 
Um, and for for me, I, I save a lot of things to watch later. So I don't my my wife and I don't necessarily agree on what we should be watching on YouTube. And so um, and so I when I see something, I, very, I don't want to ever lose it because I, I don't know if I'll be able to find it again. So I'm just constantly saving for later. And so um, so I, I move everything to save for later. And then usually while I'm feeling like I just want to sit down and like do the thing where I'm just sitting and watching something. I open up Save for Later and I sit there and watch, start watching it and it's playing all the things that I thought I wanted to watch at some point. And um, I find that to be a very great experience. You can then tell that playlist, you can say, download this playlist. You know, so, so it'll download the whole playlist before you get on the plane. And so a lot of times I'll have Save for Later that has five or six hours of content in three minute and 14 minute increments. And I've got, you know, I've got that whole flight of just watching all of those um, downloaded onto my iPad. It's a, it's a great experience. And so I, I have a lot of playlists. I probably have 20 or 30 playlists of things that I like to keep. But I, the one that I use 90% of the time is just safe for later so that I can go back and at least know where to look. Uh, I make no attempt to um, n- normalize the, the algorithm. <laughs> like I, 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 you know, my, my algorithm is, is, uh, is serving me up stuff. And then I search for a lot of things. I get into weird verticals of mostly history and science that, that I, I'm just searching and then looking at one thing. And a lot of times, again, when I search for it, I'll save a bunch of things for later before I start watching them so I don't lose track of them. The biggest problem I have in YouTube is losing track of the things that I saw. If I go, oh, I'll, I'll just go back a page, it's gone. Um, I like that concept of actually going back to watch. I save a lot <laughs> to watch for later, but going back, do I, I get a chance to actually go back? So I like I to watch them as a, a chunk. It's a chunk of videos that I've already decided that I wanted to watch. And so it's, you know, it can be a two hour chunk. A lot of times when I'm making my soup or doing something else that, that takes a couple hours, I, I will. Um, it's a good thing to just have on the on the tube. Yes. Yeah, so similar to Courtney, I have several several accounts, of course, because managing um, managing accounts, but personally having accounts where one is like my educational account. So that's riddled with playlists. I haven't even counted how many playlists. So it's like, okay, AI and Adobe hacks and Canva tutorials. And then the that one- way... <laughs> Do you do you have the same problem? I have a problem. I manage a lot of accounts. I probably have thirty or forty accounts in my that I can log into, and I always have to look up if I'm going to save yes. something. I always look up and make sure I know what account am I saving this into, so I'm not like saving it into somebody else's account. You know? Exactly, because like Courtney said, there's uh, remember YouTube is all about making sure that they that you stay on the platform as long as possible. So the Courtney said bots, but it's the personalization. So they say, oh well, if we if you like this video, we'll serve you up more content like this. So yes, I have to be very careful which account because then it will serve up on some, you know, someone else's account that it shouldn't be. But yes, playlists, uh, that's how I manage my playlists, get my education in. But then also I actually do not pay for YouTube specifically so that I can watch the commercials and watch the kinds of ads that are um, taking place. So, you know, just keeping an eye on what's trending, what's hot and and how people are moving. So maybe not the average way people use YouTube, but that's how I use YouTube. So hopefully that was helpful for you, Bo. Next question. From Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, using Microsoft ClipChamp, I exported 50 short video clips and selected Let AI Handle It and got a decent finished video. Time spent less than five minutes. What other more upscale video editors doing along these lines? Alex. Yeah, and I'd like to thank Ken Jordan for some help on this. We're starting to try to figure out how to clip things. And so we're doing R&D around this. So we haven't really gotten it all working yet. But one of the things we're looking at a lot is opus.ai as well as clipai.com to basically we want to take this show and be able to 
um, uh, you know, cut up the first hour into its individual um, questions and then be able to post them, then be able to build playlists. I mean, those are all things that we're working on right now. Um, and so we're kind of building this pipeline um, and, you know, um, that's there and we're using them for this. I and mean, that's the number one thing that I'm, that's the number one thing I'm working on right now in, in, the, in the world of AI. Go ahead, Courtney. The nice thing about ClipChamp is it's uh, browser-based, so it's all online. Uh, Adobe, of course, had, I guess they still have it, Premiere Elements, which is a pared-down version of Premiere, and it had a lot of uh, uh, easy templates and things like that. To, you'd click on one click, and you'd point it to a folder full of videos, and it would create a video with a soundtrack uh, for it out of all those videos, which is something similar to what uh, Paul was uh, talking about that ClipChamp does. So I think Premiere Elements is still out there. It's like used to be like 99 bucks for a single copy. Now it's probably a subscription where you have to pay, you know, through the nose every month. But uh, look into Premiere Elements if they still make it. Next question. Nigel DeSalle, Austin, Texas. Courtney, as a TZ Stellar X2 user, what have you heard about the hum or grounding problem that some people are having? Go ahead, Courtney. I decided, uh, hearing Nigel's problem, I decided to uh, tear apart my Stellar X2. And I see Nigel has already figured out how to tear it apart. But um, a couple of things to look for. Uh, in the end here, uh, you have the, uh, you know, the three-pin XLR connector. And if you have a continuity tester, which I happen to have one in my lap here. Let's see. One thing you want to mm -hmm. test is uh, to make sure that the ground pin is connected to the case. And so pin one, which is uh, the pin on the left, if you put pin two at the bottom, uh, you touch uh, one side of your continuity detector to that and the other side to the case. And if you hear noise, then you've got a good uh, connection. The problem is um, to open these, uh, they have a screw-on cap at the end, which you just unscrew here. And the Stellar X2 is a little bit different than uh, many. This is a very common case design. It's copied after the Neumann. Uh, there's this locking collar, which is made out of uh, brass or nickel-plated brass. And you can see uh, the problem, I think, stems from the fact that this is powder-coated. Uh, the finish on this microphone is powder-coated. And uh, you'll notice that the... Um, here, I can maybe demonstrate this. Where does that stuff... Um, the inside of this locking ring, the threads, which are on here, are uh, not powder-coated, but the uh, outside is, and the powder coating is not conductive. No conductive. So the problem is, in order for the ground, when you take the sleeve off, and the sleeve on the uh, Stellar is made of steel, as opposed to the rest of the microphone's construction, or like the end cap is nickel, but this particular piece is steel. Just it with a magnet. And the problem is when they did the coating on this, and inside, I'll point this out, inside there's two boards. There's a, a uh, the power supply board, and then there's the preamp, which uh, the preamp is, is high-gain preamp, FET preamp, that amplifies the uh, capsule, which is upstairs, up top here in the, in the top part of the microphone sealed off, thankfully. And uh, it goes through here. So if, if uh, your body, which conducts uh, hum very well, it's, it's picking up from the wires in your house, get close to this uh, without any shielding, you're going to pick up hum in the amplifier. So 
technically, this is designed to prevent that hum from reaching the, pre the preamp. The problem is, is when they uh, powder-coated these things, they coated the inside and the outside, which makes it insulated from the rest of the case. So what they did is they ground down just the edge here, and there's a notch on one side here. And if you look at the notch at the very end, they've ground the uh, coating off the inside of the notch, and so that notch has to fit into a little uh, tab at the top here, and that, that's the only place that it actually contacts the rest of the ground, grounded area. This, this part is grounded, these, these uh, supports here that hold the preamps are grounded, and the capsule itself is grounded, but this is floating and exposed to uh, EMI unless it's got a grounded cover. So when you slide this on and fit it in there, if, if that tab doesn't fit all the way in, or if they've, there's some, uh, I don't know if you can see it, there's some Loctite on a screw there right at the base of that tab. And if they got a little uh, generous with the Loctite and it overlaps up onto the tab, it may prevent the only place mm -hmm. that does electrical connection, which is inside this little notch here, from you know, reaching the cover. So then the cover will be floating because the base here is floating. There's a gap around the end there. And this, when you screw this on, the, uh, I've sanded mine down a little bit. Uh, the coating sometimes overlaps the lip of this so that the, this, which holds the, uh, the cover, the tube on, on tight, uh, wasn't making electrical contact with the tube itself because the coating was insulating it from electrical contact. So I think that may be the cause of some of the hum in some of them because if they're not screwed down tight enough or that uh, if they got a little liberal with the Loctite and it overlapped the area where it contacts the tube, it's not grounding the steel tube. And if that tube is not grounded, it's floating, then if you touch it, you're going to conduct your hum to the grounding tube and it's going to feed into the preamp and give you hum, hum, hum. There's, and there's very little way to test it since all the outside of the mic is powder-coated. Uh, it's insulated, so you can't just, you know, test, uh, let's see, test the end here to any part of it. It's not going to show us continuity. Where's that wheel? That, there's no place on the microphone you can test to see if that's grounded, because once you assemble it, all the exposed parts are inaccessible. So it's kind of tough. You might grind off a little piece here. <laughs> anyway, so that's I my explanation, and I'm sticking with it. Tech Zone might be able to fix it somehow. They might be able to put a piece of copper or something around the inside there to make better contact between the internal part and the out outside part of the microphone itself. Nigel was like doing the celebration. He, he was applauding. Yes. N Nigel, did that, did that answer? <laughs> answer? I, I think yes. I mean, I, it's given me some things to try. Um, it's an amazing answer. Amazing answer. Thank you. Go ahead, Mitchell. I'm just gobsmacked. I don't know what to say after hearing Nigel uh, do a uh, an autopsy on his microphone, but that was awesome. <laughs> um, one other thing you can try that sometimes is just a tiny bit faster is try a different XLR cable. If for some reason pin one on the uh, connectors are uh, not properly seated or there's a cold solder joint, um, it could exacerbate that problem all the way up to the microphone itself. So try a different uh, connector, you know, one, you know, a good one, maybe a star quad with uh, nitric uh, 
uh, connectors on it. Uh, that might be a quick fix. Just any other XLR you have floating around, see if that helps. Um, sometimes lifting the ground on one of the one end or the other uh, will sometimes uh, fix the problem too. Ground loops are very strange. They don't always follow the laws of physics. So uh, have fun with that. Courtney. Yeah, one thing I forgot to mention is the grounding lug. On all XLR connectors, there's three pins, and usually pin one is the ground, which is attached to the shield on the cable, as as Mitch was saying. But the case uh, of the XLR connector is sometimes a, is usually a separate ground, and there's a spa- there's a lug inside, and you can see it if you look inside the microphone. You can see that there's a little wire that runs between the the grounding lug and the pin one. And so make sure that wire is there. And the second thing is there's a grub screw that attaches uh, this internal XLR connector uh, to the to the metal base here. And that grub screw is the electrical connection between ground and the case. So if that grub screw is loose, or if you can stick your finger in here and wiggle, and you feel any wiggle in those pins, that means the grub screw is loose and it's not a good ground. So, uh, and you can see the screw is, I don't know if you can see it, but it's... It's right there. Uh, and it may be reverse threaded, so you may have to turn it clockwise to back it out, which tightens it into the case, and counterclockwise screws it in, which disconnects it from the case. So make sure the grub screw is tight because that's the main connection between the case and pin one and the ground. And Alex. I only want to correct one thing. The, the, the ground is always following the laws of physics. <laughs> it just may not be following our understanding of them. <laughs> so, anyway. Next question. From Richard Bowman, Defiance, Ohio. How can we cost-effectively mic a 24 by 20 conference room for Zoom and Teams meetings? We've had complaints from remote participants about the Jabra 810 that is currently in place. Two Jabra 710s, four to six hardware mics with mixer. Go ahead, Alex. I will say that the, my favorite solution for this is the Microflex. And they have, Microflex has these little, um, they have little stands and they, they have little wired, not wired, like a little stand uh, mic. I don't have a picture of it, uh, but it's a, it's like a podium mic, um, but it's, or a, or a, what is it? Anyway, so um, the, uh, uh, uh and you can put them in front of everybody, but they're wireless. And so you can set them on this case and they just, they, you set them on their charger and you can define w- what channel they're going through. It's all over Dante. It's wireless to a, to an access point, which then just provides Dante over ethernet back to your mixer. Um, you can do auto mix at that point. You can just set these down in front of everybody and let them kind of, and there's a button on them that lets them mute and unmute. Um, and it's just, you're throwing them together. If you really care about sound, it makes a huge difference. Um, you can also have, I think that, that Microflex also makes one that you can kind of t- tuck into people's pockets. That's not the most cost-effective way to do it, but it makes it just go away. Like it just, you know, I just, I just have to say that it's, it's a thousands of dollars to do that. Um, it makes it go away. Otherwise, I would go to hardwired mic. The cheapest way to do this is SM58s. I mean, you may not want to do that. Or you could do boundary mics, you know, that are just like little flat, you know, um, a lot of people, MXL makes some that you can put down around uh, in front of people that could be wired. Um, And then you, but the big thing there is having some kind of auto mixer. So a Dugan auto mixer somewhere in your mixer system so that it can, um, you know, not play all of those out at the same time. Um, But but getting individual mics makes uh, a big difference. The, The 
biggest thing that will make a difference for you is treating your room. The reason they can't hear you is most likely because you have a lot of hard surfaces. You've got hard walls, you've got glass walls, you've got whiteboards, you've got all of those other things. Um, and, you know, I think that the when we really think about the future of, you know, a lot of us think about all these whiteboards and everything else, I think eventually we're going to end up with conference rooms that are soft around because we really are thinking about that with one big monitor on the end and tools like this so that you can just, everyone can do the whiteboard thing at the end of the room for everybody. We don't have to stand up and keep on using, you know, go back to the caveman thing, you know, and, uh, and cavewoman thing of drawing on the, on the walls. Um, so, so I think that that is, where we're probably going, but treating the room is going to, would make a huge difference. You, you probably can't because everyone thinks they look pretty and they don't care about how they sound. Jason? Yeah, plus one on that solution. I did that at a, a law firm and total cost was maybe 22 grand um, for video and audio and sound treatment. But oh boy, is it beautiful. And for our producers, thank you for the questions that you submitted so far. You can answer, you can share your questions at any point in time. And remember to vote up or down on the questions that you want to see because the show is driven by you. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael, Amazon is taking return to office to a new level by insisting employees return to a specific hub office in a specific city, even if approved to be in the remote in the past. Is this a move out of desperation or are there real benefits? Go ahead, Alex. Well, I think companies think that there are real benefits. I don't know. I mean, you know, I think that there, there, there's definitely something about being in the same room with everybody that allows you to, um, you know, work with other folks and brainstorm. And, and I think that periodically getting together, the question is, do you need that every day? You know, and I think that that's the, um, the question. The, the companies that I know that have been remote since long before COVID have kind of built patterns into they'll get together once a week as, a, as an office. They'll get, you know, with people in the, in the same area or maybe once a month in once a quarter, they might go regionally. And then one, once or twice a year, they get together as a whole company. But a lot of them are all working remotely. And these are companies that were designed to be remote from day one. And this has usually happened before COVID. Um, and so, and they've gotten into that. And then they have lots and lots of video conferencing like this, you know. And so um, I think that it's just a matter of companies not really knowing how to do that. It makes them, you know, nervous about those things. Um, yeah, the problem really is, is that the, employees that don't want to come back. And I've talked to a lot of my friends who are considering leaving a good paying job that they love because of return to office. That is a crazy math. That is crazy math. That should, that should terrify companies. High performing employees who love what they do and are getting paid well are thinking about leaving your company for lower paying jobs because they don't want to drive to the office and they don't want to come back or they don't want to leave where they live now. And that is a, you know, that is a huge opportunity for startups. It's a huge opportunity for smaller companies. And so what you're going to see is some of your higher performing over the next five years, if companies don't reorganize their return to office, they're going to see startups, smaller companies and aggressive large companies basically poaching all of their um, workers as this technology gets better, they're going to start poaching all their workers and taking their best people and leaving them with the people that are willing to come into the office. And that's not going to be, they're not going to, you know, it's just, it's not going to kill the company. It's just going to degrade their ability to innovate. Courtney. 
Yeah, I think it's Amazon's way of making sure you're A, still alive and haven't harnessed AI to respond to all your emails and questions automatically while you're out on the golf course playing golf all day, you know. So I think it's their way of making sure you're involved, bringing you into the into the office, uh, lets you interface with other people every now and then and uh, establish, you know, some type of rapport to let them know that you haven't degenerated into some basement dweller who, you know, only comes out at in the middle of the night, so I think it's just something to keep you on a on a uh, a healthier uh, a healthier path than becoming isolated. Keeps you out of isolation. Next question from Eric Hers, Hartford, Connecticut. I want to use the HDMI output of a Blackmagic ATEM Mini Pro and split this to two PCs, Windows or Mac, running OBS that will send RTMP to two broadcast servers each. What hardware do you recommend for this? Would this change if I use vMix? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, you could use the um, uh, USB output as a webcam out of the ATEM Mini for one of them, and then take the uh, HDMI out that's split uh, to your monitor and run it through one of these uh, HDMI to USB adapters, and you can get these for around 20 bucks on Amazon. They're you know, not quite as high a quality as the very expensive ones that you can get from Elgato or, or the other converters that do HDMI to USB. These look pretty good. They do. I've used these for 1080p, and no one's noticed the difference, uh, especially if you're going to feed them through OBS or something else before streaming it out. Uh, uh, I think it'll work fine. So something like this to come in as a webcam on your second PC, and then you can run that into OBS and then out onto the world. And Alex? Yeah, my, Blackmagic makes these little mini recorders that are they're like 125 bucks. You could put one on each computer, um, and then... Uh, you would just simply need to split your HDMI out to go into those computers. Now, if I was going to do this, and I was doing this all the time, and the only thing I was doing with those PCs was to encode, I would be, I would probably still go to AWS with links. You know, I would just have two little links, and I'd plug them in, and I'd send them to AWS, and then send them to wherever I want. Um, you know, so I think that that's where I'd probably lean towards because it's a lot simpler and it'll just work. Um, but if you do want to use these machines, then I would spend the, you know, get these little mini recorders. They're, they're going to deliver. There's a variety of different ones that are USB-C or Thunderbolts. You got to pay attention to what those are. Um, but those will take that feed in and then all you got to do is split that, that uh, uh, HDMI with whatever you'd like. Also remember that you could use the RTMP out of the Pro into something like Restream and then just simply send it to two different places as well if you're doing RTMP. So Restream or send it to AWS and do it. But either way, those would also do it in the cloud. Um, and so you wouldn't, you, could, you wouldn't need any computers to, to, um, to make that happen. Next question. Jack Rupel, Breckenridge, Colorado, in a moving stereo image, if you have binaural or spatial audio, might this help from getting sick? Matching sensory input, less cognitive load. Courtney? No, I think the main problem with getting sick is your vestibular canals in your ears that are the problem. Not, not your hearing, but the attitude of your head versus the attitude of the image you're seeing in your eyes. When those two things disagree, that causes you to get nauseous. And so just having spatial sound is not going to affect the vestibular canals in your ears. So I don't think it will help. It'll distract you maybe a little bit, so you won't think about throwing up quite as much. But uh, other than that, I don't think it will help with the nausea problem. And.
And Alex? Yeah, the, it's the inner ear to eye as connection as, as uh, Courtney was outlining there. It's really the problem. It has nothing to do with audio. Uh, it does make it a much better experience when you match the audio with it. But the bottom line is, is that when you start to shoot uh, immersive stereo, uh, it's not so much um, just, just stereo. So stereo isn't the biggest problem. You can have things moving around in stereo as long as you have an outer frame that remains still. So if if I can see the edges of my screen in the virtual environment, or if I'm at a IMAX or something watching Avatar and I can see, as long as I can see the edges of the screen, I'll remain, my brain will understand that I'm, that I'm not moving. Um, it's when it fills up your entire uh, aperture is when your, your eyes can get, you know, uh, connected, it starts to think that it's looking at something, especially as the frame rates go up. So as frame rates start to increase and you start to do that, um, now when frame rates get really low, it also becomes a problem because the lower the frame rate, it means it starts to lag. Your visual starts to lag from your inner, and we've, uh, I didn't do that when I say we, there was a company, uh, and a, a large uh, location event company that did a lot of testing on this in the 90s. And they found that almost everyone will throw up at about 12 frames a second. <laughs> so, so like, you know, like, and it's and poor college students got paid a hundred dollars each to figure that out. So anyway, um, and, 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 uh, most, but, but, uh, those are really, and then you go up in about 18 frames a second, they'll stop doing that, but you don't feel like it's natural until you get to about 90 frames a second, which is where the Apple vision and a lot of the other ones run at is about 90 frames a second is what it feels like. You're just looking at something happening. Um, but again, you have to be very careful. You just have to, as we move into 180 degree immersive content, we are going to change the way we make content. It's not going to be, we got to stop listening to filmmakers who want to do what they have always done, but in a new new form. That is new wine and old wineskins. You know, like it's like, it will not work. You have to, you have to um, rethink how you build the content for the new medium. Next question. From Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. We discussed the line, now comes Oxygen, Dubai Circle, and the Mukab. Saudi Arabia's insane cube would become the biggest building in the world. Where will it go next? This trend to come to the U.S. and Texas, and a YouTube link is provided. Courtney? Yeah, if you look at this cube, the picture of this cube, it's pretty insane. Uh, that looks like a giant building. It's like 100 times bigger than any other building surrounding it. The problem with this is uh, safety. And ever since that MGM fire back in Vegas many years ago, John Pretto will know this, they discovered that the fire equipment couldn't go above a certain floor, like the seventh floor. So if there's a fire that breaks out above the seventh floor, if there weren't, you know, a very good sprinkler system and there would be have to be a huge water reservoir on top of this building, which is going to take a lot of stuff to pump the water up there, uh, there's no way to fight a fire above about, you know, floor six or seven or ten and this thing's like, I don't know, 300 stories tall. Uh, I, I think it'd be a, a cube would turn into a giant burning sugar cube or something if it caught on fire. And just think of all the people that are living in that. All it takes is one, one of them doing something stupid to set the thing on fire. So I think safety is going to be a huge problem with an office building this big or a living, a living city in a cube this big. There's going to have to be some type of management of uh, resources, water, fire, uh, sewer. You can imagine if they get a big sewer clog on the way out, you know, what is Roto-Rooter going to charge you to undo a clog from something that size? And Alex? 
there's a strong uh, desire in that part of the world to attract people to something that is exciting and interesting um, and move past oil, you know, as far as a business goes. And modern, you use the oil money to modernize the, you know, and, and, and build something people want to come. And Dubai has been doing this for a long time. Abu Dhabi has been doing this for a long time. There's a lot of architectural pro uh, projects and most of them get funded by being audacious, not being, um, you know, basic. So, so um, these are still architectural drawings. We don't know if they're actually going to get built, um, but they could. I mean, they put a bunch of sand into the, into, the, into the Gulf to make it, you know, to add more, you know, and build palms and all kinds of other things. So, you know, doing outrageous uh, architectural work there um, is, uh, is not, not something that's new. Um, it's been, they've been doing that for 20 or 30 years um, and they'll probably continue to do it. And I think it's just fun to watch. <laughs> just get your popcorn out and see how how they how they do. Next question, Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana. So, what platform is best for location notifications at this point? We're looking at possibilities to grow a bigger audience for a food truck. They have decent Facebook, Instagram presence, but trying to help a buddy get more spur of the moment customers. Alex, you know i I would say that. Um, I was just at an event with a whole bunch of food trucks and someone put, it was, it was Mexican and they put this gorgeous photo of some of their food and they had a QR code underneath it. And when you clicked on it, you saw a map of where to go, <laughs> like, you know, like a where in the facility. And I, it, the, the burrito was amazing, you know? And so, so I, you know, and, and, and when you got there, there was this long line and all the other food trucks were slow. And there was this long line of people for this one. And, and I asked the person in front of me and the person behind me how they got there. And they're like, oh, I saw a QR code in the picture and it looked really good. <laughs> so, so I don't, I don't, you know, I think we can try to do a location notification, but it, you know, some QR codes are something that most people know how to use now. And, you know, putting out those little postcards and putting out those things there. And, and especially, I think the one that we had was like, it was like a 25% off. I don't know what the original price was. They probably just moved the price up 25% and then it was 25% off. But we all had these little, you could grab onto this little thing and, and you get a little offer. You, should, you didn't grab onto it, you used it on your phone. But but the, the um, I, I, I would, I would, uh, I would think about QR codes. Jason? Alex's answer is a, is a really good one. I, I just specifically for an app, um, Glimpse, G-L-Y-M-P-S-E, has a fleet tracking um, version, a professional version of Glimpse. This is one of these companies that Microsoft acquired and didn't ruin, which is, you know, kind of a rarity. But um, it, it's an excellent way to just be able to post a quick link that is designed to expire um, whenever you want or when you reach a specific location. So in this case, you know, share it for a day and, you know, put it out maybe as a QR code and then go from there. I'm going to tag on what Jason just shared. Um, there is, because I'm thinking as much as this question is uh, very technical in the notifications to let people know, but I wonder if part of what could help is also some of the storytelling and the marketing around it. And I say that because um, if you look up Pinky Cole, um, she's the founder of Slutty Vegan, and they started as a food truck and they would pop up. So if you wanted to know where they would be, you would one have to get their text notifications, like be signed up to that. And just the story of you never know, it could be at 
certain time of day or night. So just the anticipation and the scarcity that comes around that. Um, just wanting to add that as possibly something that could work to to help to Jason's point with the QR code and like it disappears after a period of time and just building some of that could be something helpful as a part of their storytelling and marketing. Next question. From Jack Rupel, Breckenridge, Colorado. When is 3D content just a gimmick and when is it necessary? Jason? From a cinematic perspective, I would say it's almost never necessary. From a from a practical point, USDZ and, you know, will it fit in my space? Um, I'd say it's very, very handy and only going to become more prevalent. And Courtney? And when you're talking about 3D content, I assume you're talking about stereo vision, which is a left eye, right eye situation where you're serving an, an offset image to each eye. And it is a gimmick. It was proven to be a gimmick the four times that it's gone into the entertainment industry and disappeared within about a year or two. And it then tried to make its way into television and it disappeared in about a year or two. Uh, the only place it would be necessary is if you're having to gauge distance accurately so uh, and within about 10 feet. So surgeons that are doing remote surgery uh, where they have to, you know, determine where, where the scalpel is versus where the artery is, you know, they need a 3D vision for that if they're operating a robotic uh, surgeon. It's definitely necessary for that to, to note uh, your, your depth perception uh, is only good if you have stereo vision. So something like that may be a uh, flight simulator or a driving simulator where you want to, you need to gauge distances. But once you get beyond about 10 feet, your stereo vision does very little to help you gauge distances. You just have to gauge it by knowing the size of things at different distances. So I'd say it's uh, not necessary. It's mainly a gimmick as far as entertainment's concerned. And like I said, there are a few applications where it, it would be necessary, but those aren't very popular <laughs> situations. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I agree with Courtney 100%. Entertainment versus technical um, entertainment. Uh, the Muppet Show at MGM Graham Studios, absolutely necessary. And Alex? I mean, I think that there's a lot of times when it's, I mean, I think that when we make it, when we don't do real stereo, when we start cutting things out and putting them on cards, I think are the, it's, it's a gimmick. It's always a gimmick. Um, when we are creating something that really gives you an immersive experience, it's, pretty uh, has a pretty dramatic effect on how things feel when it's done well so i think that you'll and i think that you know, you're going to see more and more of it over the next decade next question henry ramos yonkers new york needs six guests ndi into vmix for occasional use zoom rooms or invest gasping here mac or learn zoom iso go ahead alex I think most people would use Zoom rooms for this, uh, you know, the, if, especially if you're using a PC, you could, you know, it's going to give you those ISO outs and so on and so forth. So I think that, that I, I think, though, though, if you if you look at the cost of Zoom rooms and then you, the cost of Mac mini, you, it depends it depends on how long you're going to use it. Uh, you may end up evening that out at some point. Um, my of course, I would do probably Zoom. You know, I would <laughs> I would I would do it with a Mac mini. But I think a lot of people here would use uh, Zoom rooms for that. Next question. Jack Rupel, Breckenridge, Colorado. Have any of you seen Oppenheimer yet? Can you comment on the audio? Go ahead, Nigel. Yes, we have seen Oppenheimer. We saw it at IMAX, not the fancy 1570 or whatever. It's just digital IMAX. It's a great movie. 
um, thoroughly recommend it. Uh, specifically to the sound, I know sometimes we worry that we can't hear the, the dialogue in his movies. I heard every piece of dialogue that I know of. The, the music does get very loud at some points. For some reason, the only thing I can really remember is a lot of staccato violins were playing often. But, but I, the rest of it I didn't really notice because I was so engrossed. And this is a reminder for our producers that you could submit and vote on questions at any time during the show. Next question. From Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. What is the Fediverse and will Threads make or break it? How does this work? And how does Threads lose half of its users already? Alex? I don't think they should have necessarily been so bullish on publishing all their numbers on the way out. That, that's all that happened here is you saw a big surge. The, the, the reason that you saw so many people go in is because they already had Instagram and they attached threads to Instagram. This is meta. Attached threads to Instagram. So people like me jumped, downloaded threads, made sure that we protected our um, handle and then deleted it. <laughs> like, you know, like it was like, okay, I'm done. And I'll go up every once in a while and, and do some, some, something. But it's it was not a um, not something that we really cared about. We just want to make, you know, a lot of us just protect our, our, uh, you know, our handles. Um, so, uh, so I think that that's most likely, um, where you saw a big push. Also, it still felt like an empty mall. Like it just, it wasn't, you know, the, you, you got there and that's the hard part of growing so quickly. You know, the, the big thing is if you grow really fast, it's very porous. There's just not a lot there yet. No one knows what to do with it yet. And people are still using Twitter for other things. And, and so you can't figure that out. And when that happens, um, you end up with this big porous thing that everyone, you know, you may have a big room and everyone comes in, but no one knows what to do with it. And so I think that a lot of people just went back to what they were doing, you know, and, and I think they went back to, I guess, Twitter or X or whatever we want to call it. Right. <laughs> and that you, you said that exactly correct, Alex, of wanting to secure your name. I know I did. And just still it is like whenever a new platform comes out, you there's a need for a very unique or specific identity. And with threads, while it's paired with Instagram. So you do have people that would, you know, from Instagram would follow you over. I got a, a lot of different people, but it's still thinking through, well, how am I going to use this platform? How is it going to be different than what I've done in other areas? And that part, a lot of people were still trying to figure out now, the benefit of Threads was not necessarily having the bots. You know, that's the concern in all these platforms is the bots and the spam that happens from that. So, um, yes, so people have gone back to their regularly scheduled programs. However, I've seen that, you know, Threads is taking uh, user feedback really well. And so we'll see as new features come in, how that will how that will happen. And with anything new, it's like there's this uptick, and then it balances out once the true core users really get a handle on it. And I don't know that Threads necessarily has that yet. So we'll see, um, we'll see where that goes. And to your initial question with the Fediverse, I would have to defer to someone else on that because I, I, I know what it is and how it works, but more so to articulate it in a way that makes the most sense. So hopefully Alex could do that. Alex? I don't think anyone really understands what Fediverse is. <laughs> okay, I mean, so it's, it's not just it's me. A big, it's a big marketing term. It's, it's uh, you know, like, it, I mean, the idea that, that you can be connected and you're connecting parts of things to other things, I think is part of the, part of the issue. But, you know, I think to go back to it, the, the big thing is I don't keep a lot of, um, 
there's no desktop platform for threads and I don't keep meta apps on my phone, not out of paranoia, but because I like battery life. And, and so for whatever reason, uh, the meta apps suck up, historically sucked up a lot of my battery. And when I, I found that when I took, a, took it off, I could last for a day and a half, sometimes two days on without a charge on my phone. And so, um, and before it was like eight hours <laughs> with all their apps on it. So, so I have, uh, that's the reason I don't really keep their apps on my, on my phone. So if something doesn't have a desktop version, I don't, don't use it because it's uh, it's using up a lot of a lot of bandwidth, a lot of a lot of battery power. Go ahead, John. The Fediverse is an attempt at all the little social networks to federate user data, and so they all got together and said, if we federate users' data, they won't be afraid to create an account at our social network because they can easily transpose their data at any of the associated networks. That's what the federate. And of course, the, the Fediverse is. And and of course, the future is actually to for the users to protect their data and not share it with anyone. Like that's right. not, the future is not to federate their data between services. It's to not give away any of their data. <laughs> so, so that's, that's what you're going to, that's the next generation of a lot of these social media will be um, uh, blackouts. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael, writing on the success of 70 millimeter showings of Oppenheimer, IMAX is considering building 1570 film projectors, do you think it'll be possible to rebuild a full film chain today, even with qualified film projectionists few and far between? Courtney. No, and that's the problem is the projectionists and the repair technicians that know how to service those 1570 rolling loop projectors, there's only 30 of them left in the world. So 30 projectors left in the world. So adding more, I think they're already spread thin right now with the number of qualified projectionists that know how to thread them up and run them. And the problem with those projectors also is the prints. You know, for a theatrical movie that is, you know, two or three hours long, that costs you thirty to $40,000 for a single print. Uh, so that's a very expensive method. And now the studios have gotten used to shipping, you know, uh, their their movies around on a on a uh, hundred and fifty dollar hard drive. Uh, it's kind of hard to go back to the thirty thousand dollars per print, which can only be shown in one theater versus putting it on a server where it can be shown on seven screens in a multiplex at the same time, with just one hard copy with one hard drive uh, that you have to ship. So uh, as far as a distribution media. It's awful. It's not a positive thing. They lose money on them. So I don't think there's going to be uh, the popular the popularity of Oppenheimer is not going to uh, cause a resurgence in 1570 projection installations. It's too expensive, too small an audience, and uh, too hard to maintain. Mitchell, yeah, Courtney's exactly right. I think we got to have to say goodbye to it at some point. It's just a fading uh, technology. It's sort of like running a radio station on vinyl records only. I was talking to uh, Penn Ketchum, who owns uh, Penn Theaters in and around this area. They're all IMAX theaters. And uh, Penn kind of laughed a little bit when I asked, uh, what about a new 70-millimeter um, facility? And he said he'd have to sell an awful lot of popcorn to make that work. And Alex? Uh, yeah, so the Oppenheimer is sold out every showing at the 1570 theaters every single showing like in the movie world that never that almost never exists um and if you have movie uh if you have the big directors um you know willing to do four or five movies a year so if you get um uh denny and and uh 
Nolan and and a couple more to to put together uh, a movie a year, a movie every other year. You get uh, you know these and make them events. They're probably more viable than most other theaters because. We're not really, you know, those theaters, they're not going to make thousands of these, but going to 60 theaters or 90 theaters. So the math is, is that they probably, they pay off the print in probably two or three days, you know, when it's sold out like that. And it, it's, it's, uh, I mean, you have to, I mean, I'm not gonna do the math here, but I can tell you that they pay off the print in the first three days. So, so anyway, so the, um, uh, and so the, uh, they, I think they could also charge a lot more money. I think they would sell out at ten dollars more a ticket than they're than they're charging right now, um, and so so I think that they, because people like me would would have paid two or three times the the regular price to see it. I can't get to a fifteen seventy theater, uh, or you know. So so I don't. I think that um, you know I can't get to one that is going to have it in there. It's everything is sold out, and so I think that when you see that kind of demand, you you know, because the people who are go- still going to film are people who want to see a big film. They want to see the high res. They want to see. They want to have the impact. You know, and the rest of the f- film world is kind of dying away. You know, like you know, it's the we're not. You know, there's nothing else out there except for big events. So I don't think that I, I don't think they're going to make thousands of them, but I think going to 60 or a hundred theaters that, that have these, um, they'll, they'll make money, but they have to know that they're going to get, um, probably two or three minimum, two or three made for IMAX, uh, films a year to, to make it viable. And Courtney. Yeah, I, I don't think so. The, the, the thing that made Oppenheimer so popular is the fact that it's the only film. I think it's the only film that was shot 100% in 1570 and finished 1570, uh, you know, photochemically. Right. That's what you'd have and to And because that's, and so all these enthusiasts have to get to the tw- 13 theaters that can show it instead of the 3,000 theaters that Barbie is showing in. So Barbie's making double what Oppenheimer's making. And Oppenheimer, because it's three hours long and only available in 1570 and 13 theaters in the United States, 30 worldwide, uh, you know, Barbie's going to run circles around it, and Barbie was shot in 35 millimeters, or is shot in digital. Uh, so it's a lot cheaper to produce something uh, that's going to bring in a lot more money. So economically, I don't think it makes any sense. The um, and and that's like I say, it's it's the standout, and to shoot in IMAX, as we know from Oppenheimer's behind the scenes, it's so noisy, everything, all the dialogue has to be looped, you can't capture, you have to capture all the sound separately in a separate run uh, without the camera running, Uh, so it's synchronized in post. Uh, So there's a million problems of shooting in IMAX, the loads, if, you know, the loads are only one and a half minutes to two minutes long, you can't do any long takes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and we're only 5K away from the resolution on digital cameras, you know, 12K versus 18K of a digital camera that can capture the same resolution as that IMAX. And then the projectors have to come up, step up to maybe a dual 8Ks uh, to achieve the same resolution and projection. And you don't really notice the difference in projection after about 4K. Uh, in on, most most theater goers can't see the difference. <laughs> well, only in an IMAX screen. Like I say, I'm not saying this is going to. They're not building any more seven story tall theaters. You know? I, I, I know, but they, right. But the thing it's is, expensive. they have seven story tall theaters that aren't being that aren't being utilized. I, I just I don't think that this is taking over the world. But I think that the theaters that do it are profitable enough that it wouldn't take very many for them to you know if they added thirty on or this 60. one movie. How much did Inception bring in? It was available in 1570. I don't know. Um, 
But yeah. the, I think the, the difference is, is that How they market— How much did Dunkirk bring in? Did it break but, any records? But they, no, but you the, could the, get seats to that one. But the difference, the difference is, is that, they, that they started marketing the 1570. So that in, the, in the past, they have not. They've not marketed. They've said made for IMAX, but they didn't start marketing 1570 until Oppenheimer. And, and they found that there is a—again— it's not that it takes over the world. It's not going to change the gross. It's it, the the main thing is is that that it is those theaters. I think are pro- are profitable enough to make it worth having more of them. Not significantly more. Probably no more than a hundred. But it would make it would just they're just printing money. Like just money is just coming out the back of those theaters like like a, just like a printing press. You well, know. So it so it it makes sense to have more printing presses of money. Um, it doesn't. You, at some point, you would saturate the demand pretty quickly. Um, but there's you. What's proven is the fact that they sold out. Anytime you see something sell out, you know that you don't have enough of it. Like as soon as it sell, like I mean, sell out before the movie run started. All of the all of the showings were sold out. That means that the supply and demand are not lined up correctly, and so you can either increase the price a lot, or increase the supply a lot, or a little bit of both. Um, but but when you see that, anytime you see that, you're like, oh, I left a lot of money on the table. <laughs> like, you know, and so, so that's the, I mean, the, the math is just that you have to, you know, it, it, they'll just do the math and figure out whether it makes sense to add. I mean, I think they, it won't be, it'll be to the major markets, the New Yorks, the San Francisco's, the LA's. I mean, they could put two more, uh, you know, 1570s into San Francisco, in the Bay Area, into LA or whatever, and they'd sell those out too. And now that people have seen them and they're kind of part of that, that's part of the culture. There is, a, again, it's not everyone. But if 1% of the viewing public wants to see 1570, it'll sell out, you know, hundreds of theaters around the world um, if only 1% is interested. So that's, well, the, that's the math. It's, it's, it's the math. It's the and, individual math of the theaters that makes it worth it. In L.A., the China, I'm sorry, in L.A. in the Chinese theater, you know, the main big theater, it's mm-hmm. now an IMAX theater. They carved out the basement and made, made the tall screen because it wasn't a seven-story tall building. Uh, they had to dig into the ground. Uh, it has dual digital 4K projectors. The 1570 projector, they moved to, to Theater 5, which is upstairs, which is about a third the size of the main theater. So that's why it's selling out. And Mitchell. Yeah, I, I agree with everything everybody was saying, except just keep in mind the geographical separation. I live in a small town uh, in the mid-Atlantic region of the U.S. We just don't have enough enthusiasts to uh, to maintain. I well, think there's do it there. one <laughs> 70 millimeter in uh, right, King just, of Prussia. But the thing is they wouldn't do well. it there. But they, the guy they, that has the uh, the Penn Cinemas, um, he has uh, Christie digital projectors, and that's fine for about 70 or 80% of the people. But but all you need is one, 1%. Well, like, you know, you just need 1% interested in this and you sell out those theaters. That's, that's the difference. Next just question. Just for this movie. Yeah. From Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas writes... Would you join Be My Eyes? I did, which is the free app that connects blind and low vision people with sighted volunteers and company representatives visually assist through a live video call. Link provided, BeMyEyes.com. Alex? I think people should check this out. I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of really interesting ways that we can assist. You know, one of the things, Be My Eyes is a great example. One of the things that we worked on with Google was um, a program to bring parts of the world to people who were, um, couldn't leave their home, you know, for a variety of reasons. And it was a great experience as well. So there's a lot of different ways we can do the thing. Be My Eyes is a great example. So I would highly recommend it. Next question. Hakan Force, Stockholm, Sweden. What are your thoughts on using NDI audio over Dante? Mitchell? 
I have to admit that I'm completely baffled by this question because I can't imagine wanting to do NDI over Dante. I'm sure there's a reason for it. I'm sure somebody smarter can comment on it, but I'm trying to figure out why you would want to do that so that I can't get past that. My apologies. Alex? Um, the uh, I would never do that. <laughs> never is a big word. Maybe somewhere in the future NDI gets, but, but not in this year. Uh, would I would I pick something over Dante as far as networked audio? Next question. John Fisher, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Is it worth upgrading from a 1080 to a 4K projector on an 80-inch screen viewed from 12 feet away for general TV watching? Alex? I'd be curious what Nigel has to say about that, um, but I would say no. <laughs> like, so I don't think that, I don't think you'd see the difference on a projection. Um, maybe you would. I think brightness and, and uh, you know, qu uh, quality, you know, quality color would make more of a difference than resolution. Nigel? So I was thinking um, the answer probably is yes, but it also has a lot to do with the projector you pick. So, you know, as, as Alex said, it's the brightness, it might be the quality of the coding engine. There might be a whole bunch of things that really depends on the projector you're picking. I, I would tell you mostly when we're putting in a 4 or 8K projector, some very nice 8K projectors if you have $40,000, um, then, you know, we're talking 110, 114 inches typically. It also depends a lot on the screen. So uh, I think if you're going at the low end, you probably won't see a lot of difference if you're, if you're going to the medium or high end with a brighter projector with a better processor in it, you probably will see a difference. Alex? And I think at 80 inches, I guess what I would say is that the, there's a lot of really good 80 inch TVs. You know, 85 inch TVs now are $2,000 each. Like, I don't know if I would... If I was going to, to anything bigger than 85 inches, I'd start thinking about, I'm thinking about a projector and I tested it and Nigel and I have been talking about that. And so, so um, over 85 inches, I would think about a projector at 85 inches or less, I'd buy a TV. I think that would be my, that'd be my response there. And Courtney? Yeah, I was going to say basically the same thing that Alex said. A 85 inch TV is going to be a better bet because you could watch it in daylight hours. Projector, you're going to need to darken the room. So you're going to need to put shades in all the windows to get the room dark enough to get the contrast ratio up to where it's anywhere near what that monitor can give you. That's going to be your biggest problem, uh, not the resolution of the projection. And, uh, you know, there's not any 8K content around right now and a limited amount of 4K content. You got to pay extra for that. You know? And then just pulling in a quick comment from our producers, Mickey says, not really, but if the budget permits, why not? <laughs> Next question. From Tal Lopez Waterman Brevard, North Carolina. Interesting discovery. My MacBook Pro is charging by my USB ATEM connection. Should I be afraid? Alex. Uh, yeah, this is an, this is just the uh, nature of if something's getting power and something isn't, it's the way USB-C works. <laughs> so it says, oh, you, you, I can give you a little power. You shouldn't be, it probably isn't very much power, uh, but it, 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 it could be sending it power there. Um, it's kind of a cascade of how USB uh, operates. Oh, thank you so much to our producer so far for all of your great questions as we prepare to make our transition to the top of the hour as we talk about the transformation of theater. So this is the great opportunity for you to submit your questions and, of course, also to vote up 
and down on the questions that you want us to ask. And I see that we have Igor Goliak with us this morning. Thank you so much, Igor. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. Longtime follower and uh, geek. <laughs> Pardo, you're one of us. You're one of us. And now you're the producing artist, di artistic director at Arlequin Players Theater. And can you talk through really quickly? Because I know that you have some things that you actually want to show us as well. And I want to make sure that we give you ample time for that. But where did Arlequin Players, where did that begin? Uh, it began in uh, in Boston uh, as a uh, kind of a hideaway in the middle of a town called Needham. Uh, it began be, it began as a um, uh, theater studio uh, where I taught uh, adult uh, actors or adult uh, education uh, with theater and uh, I joke about it that it's like a you know Russian submarine off the coast of um, uh, New England uh, that has uh, surfaced um, uh, but we've been here for for 10 years and not until the pandemic has uh, has the New York Times came to see our shows so not many people uh, we we also have a, a rating on TripAdvisor in New them and uh, we are number two in Needham uh, in terms of best things to see after a gas station so it's it's an exciting uh, town and, and speaking of the New York Times like and just even the topic of this hour is about transforming theater and that's exactly what you've done with the use of NDI and bird dogs and all of the the things we talk about every day to bring these experiences revolutionize them can you talk about what happened during the pandemic and how you got to where you are today sure so uh, we started with um uh, we were doing shows and we were, uh, we have a 55 seat black box theater and we were doing shows and, uh, we had plans and the season. And of course, uh, life takes its own, uh, turn and, uh, all of that ha had gone away. I, I believe in March, um, 2019. <laughs> and we were, we started thinking about, I started thinking about what, what do I do now? And, um, my my approach to theater has been or or to creation has been um not to you know i've i heard this conversation about imax and how much uh, 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 people are making unfortunately uh, <laughs> uh i'm a non-profit or fortunately and um the, the making part is 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 a little bit secondary to what i'm trying to do uh, uh and i i'm on the uh, I haven't seen Oppenheimer, but uh, I think uh, that would be of interest to me. So uh, when we when we uh, closed down the theater, uh, my partner and I, uh, she's uh, she's an actress, and uh, we um, uh, we basically put our baby to bed in the bedroom and dog in the other room, and uh, created a show based on the show that we did in person. And uh, uh, the show was called State versus Natasha Banina, and it's about a um, it's about a girl who commits a crime of passion. I actually would love to share some slides, if possible. 
Yes, most I, definitely. We're looking forward to it. Sure. I believe I'm sharing screen right now. Okay, you're good to go. Awesome. So uh, you can see this is this is in our home, and um, when we did the in-person show, it was very successful. It went to many festivals around the world, and when we created, uh, I decided to create uh, as if it's it's happening in a jail cell, and because she committed a crime of passion, she's addressing the audience and trying to trying to plead for uh, for her case, and. Uh, we were about to open the show and not, and I understood, I understood that everything has to be scraped and scratched and uh, put away because it doesn't work because you can't just translate theater into, uh, into something that's virtual, right? So, uh, what, what you, what, I figured out that one needs to do is to create a, a production that makes sense in the environment, that, that is created for the environment. And that's part of the schooling. Uh, when, when I go into a theater, uh, theater house, I try to figure out what's the best way to affect audience, infect audience, um, in, specifically in this space. It's called site-specific theater, and I think all theater is site-specific. Therefore, if you're doing a show at a train station and it's outside, what's the best way to affect audience um, there versus a theater that holds a thousand people versus a theater that holds 500 people and so forth and and the uh, architecture of the theater. So with this same approach, uh, I, I, I try to figure out what is the uh, what are the advantages of of being on Zoom? Right? What is what is something that I can't do uh, in person? I would. Uh, I, I see our panel is is. Uh, <laughs> are you guys with me? Yeah, listening. Cool. Uh, so, uh, what do you think is the advantage of uh, virtual uh, virtual production versus in person? Well, we being able to be global. <laughs> you know, like being able to have, Absolutely. You, know, um, you know, I think that there's, uh, you know, not having it, not being contained for that. I think a lot of times uh, individual audio and video actually makes it easier for this, you know, if we're, if we're doing something here, uh, when I, when we do something physically, it's, it's pretty complicated mm -hmm. to do a lot yeah, of those things. Um, you know, I think that uh, everybody, we have an enormous amount of, of uh, control over what we do as far as feedback as, you know, I have, in front of me, I have five or six screens. You don't see that when you're looking at it, but I've got a bunch of screens here, so I have a lot more feedback as a as a as a participant than I'd ever have in in person. So there's a lot. So of, you, you you can take front seat at every show, basically. Yeah, I mean that's the right. that's the the big advantage is that you can always if you're if you're a viewer, I'm talking about the performer side of it, but if you're a viewer, you're you're definitely getting a much better view than most of what uh, us can afford. What else? Getting those different angles, you get to see things that you typically like. If I'm in row F twenty four, this is this is my peer view. That's what I see. But being able to uh, angles coming from behind, whether there's also the elements of just like how lighting and and changing some things. Now, granted, I have a little insider information <laughs> prepping for this, but yes, those are just some of the things of just the what I'm able to see and experience, really. Yeah. Anything else? Courtney? Yeah, I think it, it uh, you lose in virtual theater or where, where the people are coming in over Zoom. 
Uh, you lose your sense of space, like the set. You don't know where actors are, where performers are in relationship to each other in their room. You don't know if they're facing each other or whether they're one's across the room fixing a drink and the other one is sitting on the couch. Uh, with live theater, you you automatically know where all the characters are in relationship to each other. So it's sometimes uh, hard to tell, you know, is this an intimate scene or are the characters shouting at each other from across the room? It's right. kind of hard to tell if the people are coming in from each individual cameras and the, the size of the image for each person doesn't necessarily change. And they don't have the same set behind them to walk around in unless you're green screening them onto something. Uh, so I imagine it's pretty hard to get a sense of space of environment when doing something space like that. is definitely space is definitely completely different the idea of virtual environment virtual space and the idea of reality uh, it can be either much further from reality or much closer to reality because uh, I, I mean I've seen Alex Lindsay in person but I haven't seen any of you so I don't know if you exist or not Right. So uh, the, our perception of reality is completely, completely different. It's, it's just a monitor with some people talking. It could be recorded. I, we don't even know if this exists. Right. Um, so that's definitely a disadvantage uh, of, of, uh, of virtual theater. But actually, it could be an advantage where uh, not only actually in terms of the space, not only are you uh, more um, separated from from the f the environment in which the audience uh, the the uh, per, uh, the performers are in, but you are also separated from the audience because the experience of um, of uh, being in a theater and and you know having uh, heartbeats at the same time in in the most beautiful moments in live theater is very difficult to do uh, virtually uh, but i want to uh, but i think this could be used as, as an advantage as well and there's ways to get there using tech as because ultimately uh whether how much money it makes whether it makes a lot of money or a lot a lot a lot of money is is something that, again, I'm not uh, as interested in, uh, but what I am interested in is the heartbeats. So what, what I would like to talk about is how to get the heartbeats there and hopefully with uh, uh, investment or whatever, uh, once the heartbeats are there, uh, it, can, uh, it can go wider. Um, I think one of the things that uh, one of the advantages of uh, virtual theater is also re um, uh, not just reach but also access. When when I have a person that's uh, uh, that can't afford to go to a uh, show downtown Boston with parking, with two hundred dollar tickets, with babysitter, and so forth. So I have a person that's uh, here in a in a town that's right next door and a person that's in Australia at the same time, and they're sharing the same experience. Uh, also, in, 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 live, in live theater, uh, what's, what's interesting is that you start to identify yourself with, uh, with the character that you're portraying, right? And so it's, it's difficult to do in virtual theater because it's just on a screen, on a two-dimensional screen. So how do you break down that barrier? So all these questions started, um, started coming to me and I understood that you have to, uh, you have to solve them. Otherwise, why, why not just shoot a movie? 
right? So the next question is, what is the difference between uh, virtual theater and film? And some of the differences are, uh, for example, well, the, ma the main difference is that it's live. So what, what does that mean? It means that performances can change. So based on the, on, on the comments and the reactions that I'm getting right now, this is, this is how, what I'm thinking, and uh, this is this what leads me to say the next thing. Based on, the, based on the connection that we have right now, even though it's a virtual connection, right? So being, uh, being alive puts the audience, uh, puts the audience feeling like there's something happening and they're at the front seat and things can go either way. So for example, audience can make uh, decisions or play a role, just like in video games, that's the, you know, for next show question, what is the difference between video games and, and theater? Uh, but audience, uh, in, in my opinion, in virtual production, need to, uh, need to have a role. So this is a very big difference between, between film. Well, in film, you're just an audience member. It's, it's a monologue. In theater, it's a dialogue. It's always a dialogue where there has to be some sort of reaction from, from the people or some sort of feedback from the people that, uh, that I'm listening to. This is not possible in movies, right? Movies are pre-recorded, right? Um, so I and think is that part it, of how you've been able to just uh, just in gaining in, in popularity and just the transformation that has been that has taken place? Like, how are you um, I'm just sharing this, especially for our producers? How is it that you're able to k gain more interactivity? Like, what do those elements look like for you when you're producing your shows? So great question. Thank you so much. That will lead us to the finally I can talk about my first slide out of 77. Uh, just kidding. So uh, the, the, the first slide, uh, I don't know if you can see it. Uh, give me a thumbs up if you can. Awesome. Not yet. It, oh, yeah. Yes. Is it in, yes. it's in present? So it's in presenter mode. So we're seeing the notes and uh, I'm sure you want us to see those great images that are on the on the slide. Well, if you can. I am, I thought I'm sharing. So us on the panel are just saying the presenter mode, they're wrong screen, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay, because I, I know that just from up, oh, there we go. Okay, great. Is Your this better? business, yes, thank you. Okay, sorry you. about Thanks. that. Okay, so, um, so this was the first show we did, State versus Natasha. And we used the fact that, again, we're on Zoom, people are on Zoom, a ton of uh, pandemic, a ton of Zoom meetings all the time. So we host uh, th this play, uh, the original title of this play is Natasha's Dream. It's about a girl that, uh, that commits a crime of passion. And so we use, uh, we use the, the uh, Zoom as, as a virtual courtroom. So when you come into the virtual courtroom, uh, you are, uh, first of all, you need to fill a pre-screening uh, survey as a juror, right? And you have to qualify as a juror. And then you see me in the top left-hand corner where, um, where I explain how things will work. And uh, even though I'm in the house, I'm wearing gloves and a mask. Uh, uh, this was an, an uh, inside uh, joke, I guess. And, and then you, you see directions on the screen that come up uh, that you will be voting 
on the guilt, on the, the verdict of this, uh, of this child, of this 16-year-old girl. And so immediately that puts you in a different state of watching because something depends on you, right? Something depends on you. So uh, it, it's no longer, it's, it's a way to, to, to catch attention. It's a way to give people roles and so forth. So after the pre-screening survey, uh, and this was done all on Zoom, uh, after the pre-screening, uh, Zoom and Resolume and Zoom OSC uh, and some other stuff. Um, so the, the girl, Natasha, speaks to you directly. So she would say, um, Alex, Alex, do you have a dream? And Alex would respond, and not only Alex would, would light up, uh, but, uh, but everyone would see that Alex lit up, right? Because uh, there's a screenshot on the uh, bottom right-hand corner where people see each other uh, and, and understand that there's a community of judges that are waging their uh, th their um, decision or, or, or verdict on what's going to happen to this person, right? And she talks to you directly. And there was a couple of different cameras um, and so forth. So that's the first slide. I'm just going to go to the next slide. Um, so th there is a slide, do you have a dream? And also in Zoom, you can show how many people actually do have a dream, right? And, and how many don't. And it actually sometimes influences the vote. It's an interesting correlation. <laughs> um, and then uh, there are things, little playful things that you can do that you also can't do uh, in theater. We understand it's a jail cell and it's in, the, uh, it's, it's in our living room actually. We just pulled out the uh, uh, bookcase and she's drawing on the walls and, and whatever she's drawing becomes animated. So it becomes animated. So for Zoom at that time it was quite creative you might say. And then the next slide and I want to show some, some things that we did also live uh, that, that are kind of cool, like things like this, where she separates from herself and starts talking to herself, right? Or she, when she falls in love, she, uh, she draws this uh, faucet on the wall, turns the faucet and hearts starting to fall out. So it's kind of her imagination, her reality. And not only are you being told a story, but you're being pulled in and uh, you're being pulled in by name into her reality, right? Uh, uh, things like where she, she goes out of the frame, then comes back into the frame and something changes. And again, it's live. And it's all, by the way, it's, all our shows are queued through QLab, which is sending OSC commands to Resolume, to Zoom OSC, uh, and, and to other programs uh, to, to do what we were doing. So there was a, my sister was uh, queuing while I was running around, uh, because at, at one point she changes into a wedding dress uh, that she, she thinks she, that she's going to get married to this person. Uh, so I, I was helping dress. Um, and here she's doing push-ups. Uh, you can see, again, these are, th these are tricks that are kind of unexpected uh, for, uh, and people understand that this is happening live. So they're questioning how, how's, uh, how's this happening live right now, yeah? And then with the finger.
so things uh, things like that and at the end they would uh, uh, they would uh, 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 wage their verdict and in this case it was she was guilty and things would change based on how people voted um, so the, you 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 can see uh, you can see what we were talking about here. I, I hope this answers. Uh, I hope this answers the question. Yes, Courtney, we've got some questions coming in from our our panelists before we get because I see producers. Thank you so much for your questions as they are stacking up, and then we'll we'll get to those as well. Courtney, are the performers looking into an interatron into a monitor that is being that has the camera behind it? Uh, through a beam splitter so that they can see the audience members and their members' names in their Zoom call so that they can so, call out to individual members in the audience to get their participation? Or? So I have, not, uh, I have not found you guys yet, but we put it on our big screen TV right behind the camera. So she, it, was, it, it, was, it was like, a, I don't know. So six, it's seven, somewhere in the same inch. eye line. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So she, she, she's looking and she's, and she's talking to you. Yes, it's, it's, with the, it's right, be, it was behind the camera. It was just because it was big, she could see it. And how do, you, how do you handle a situation where you have more audience members than will fit on a screen so that we scroll. you have to scroll yeah, back yeah, and yeah. forth yeah. between the different yeah. sides? So if she wants to call out somebody that's on page two or something, somebody's got to... Yeah, we scroll. We we also uh, we also uh, and in in one of these slides uh, in one of these slides there are like thirteen uh, thirteen pages. Oh, no, you can't see it here. But um, uh, yeah, uh, she she uh, also we would we would look through while the audience are not on screen. We would look through what are the best audience to put on. And Courtney, you would definitely qualify. Um, okay, guys, time for 70 more slides. Ready? <laughs> and and um, Igor, forgive me, Did was there a video clip that you had also? I, I'm just trying to remember if that was in choice. Not, not, not that, on this. I was, okay. I, uh, I, I was, I was asked not to do a, lot, a ton of uh, videos. Uh, okay. We sent some videos. So w the advantage was that uh, New York Times uh, came and Mikhail Baryshnikov came to see it. And People in 55 countries came to see it, and it went viral. Uh, there's no way that New York Times would have come to my 55-seat theater um, in Needham, Massachusetts, where we are ranked number two. Right. Uh, yeah. So uh, after that happened, it kind of blew up, and we were at international. We were traveling virtually to international festivals. We were performing it all the time. The um, we got a, a ton of great reviews. Uh, critics pick and kind of put us on the map. And so, can, if you want to, because that's actually a, a great place because we do have a lot of people in our community who are in theater and are still. Um, some have made the, the switch or doing some form of like virtual elements. So I know that they are loving everything that you're sharing right now. So when you look at where you were at the beginning of the pandemic and doing virtual to where you are now, what kind of advice could you give to those that are still um, still trying? to gauge the interactive part and the technical part like how have you been able to to do that well it's it's thinking about the production it's thinking about the show uh, in a <laughs> in a creative way where well 
the mindset uh, the mindset of executing a show okay we have a show that was written as natasha's dream uh, for in person audience now now that you're in a different set of rules in a different environment in a virtual environment you have to change the show just like you have to change the show being in a 500 seat theater in that's in the round versus in a theater that's straight on where the effect of the audience is completely the way the audience is impacted is completely different um so it's <laughs> the uh, difficult thing about it is replicating. Uh, you can't really replicate. You, you have to recreate and reimagine what theater, whatever this is, is every time anew. And th that, that, that's the mindset that I think great directors have I, I, that I'm trying to <laughs> copy. Uh, but I would love to talk about more stuff because uh, going from Zoom into Unity and then Unreal and then joining with in-person and, and virtual pr productions at the same time uh, is our path forward. So if you don't mind, may I uh, yes. skip through? Yes. The next? Okay, awesome. Um, all right. We'll go to Alex has a, a question afterwards. We'll get to a couple more slides and then we'll get to Alex. Sure. Let me go. Uh, so this was the next production. It was called Chekhov, uh, Chekhov OS, Operating System. So this was done in Unity. And you can see the audience are, there's a, so this was, uh, the convention was that this is a computer, an old computer that was found uh, that belonged to Chekhov. And there's no way that that, that could have happened because Chekhov passed away in 1904. Um, so we were playing with this idea and the audience, there's a wheel and the audience come, no, no longer are they in Zoom boxes, but they're put on a moving object in Unity and, and audience vote on their phones, uh, which is using, uh, which is, uh, hooked up to Unity through webhooks that impacts what happens in the show. So they come up, they, they turn on this wheel, they choose what they want to see. In this particular choice, uh, in this particular um, scene when they choose, there is only one uh, play that we did, which is, um, which is Cherry Orchard. Uh, so it was kind of rigged, but she was also the, the, the person that was live, uh, the actress that was live. This was done now in my green screen studio. So we converted the 55 uh, seat black box theater into a green screen studio that you're in right now virtually with me. Um, so now this is being done in a green screen studio live. Uh, into uh, using asymmetry keying into Unity, uh, and, and uh, people voting with their remote controls slash phones. And the next slide is, uh, so here's some of the, some of the things that, uh, that people saw. There were screens that came up and Mikhail Baryshnikov played Anton Chekhov and Jessica Hecht uh, from Breaking Bad, you may know her, uh, played uh, the lead uh, Madame Ranevskaya. Uh, and uh, so, so th these are some of the virtual environments. There was only one live actor, uh, but uh, the scenes that were chosen to play were uh, by the audience. Uh, and then we also had a live fish, fish, that chose a scene. Because 
the idea of the pandemic and the idea of Chekhov, Chekhov, two words about Chekhov. Chekhov, when he was writing this play, uh, he, he was a doctor. Uh, all his life, and he was dying most of his life because he was sit sick with tuberculosis. And the idea of agency uh, is, or lack of agency, was something that uh, that kind of are in all his plays. So, what's a way that I can express that through a virtual production? You choose the next scene. They choose the next scene. We vote on what happens. The fish chooses the next scene, and it doesn't matter. <laughs> In the end, the result is the same. And we, we went, one of the most interesting experiences, by the way, New York Times came to, this, came to this too and gave it another critic's pick. But the most interesting experience was when we performed at a gaming festival. For people that have no idea who Chekhov is or who, what this is, this was the most live audience that I've ever had in theater. Because uh, what was interesting, we were using Zoom OSC as a side narrative, which is also not possible to do with live theater, as chat. So each individual uh, person, uh, each individual um, audience member would get private chats. Private chats on Zoom, um, and they would reply back. And at the end of this... Uh, at the end of the show with the, um, with the, at, at the gaming festival, it was like a Twitch stream. It was, it was non-stop text, non-stop texting, non-stop uh, chatting. They were talking to uh, characters and, and would, would argue with the characters directly, which is something unprecedented in theater. It's, it's so beautiful. And then they were like, this, this, this thing is rigged. Uh, we're coming back next time. We're going to vote again. How did you vote? This is something you can't get in live theater. Such, such live emotion, such live feedback. But you understand that in, in the pandemic, you can, you can go to the best college, you can go to the best, uh, have the best job. But, but when the pandemic comes, something that doesn't depend on you, something you lack uh, agency in, it somehow stops life, changes life. People die, people... Uh, <laughs> find virtual theater, and so forth. Things that you could not plan for. And this is why I did uh, this play, this production. Uh, I want to do, this is a short video just uh, of, of um, how this looked. Uh, this, this is a part of the trailer that, that uh, I cut parts of. Um, and you could see here the characters are dropping down and uh, people were able to control like in a video game where the characters went left or right <laughs> you could you could control this is their voting uh on whether to sell the cherry orchard or not to sell the cherry orchard um uh, there were tv screens that came down at the end the computer kind of broke down just like uh, our life in pandemic in the pandemic and um uh, this was shot all on green screen uh, as you can see some dramatic moments by Jessica Hecht and Anna Baryshnikov. And uh, this, is, uh, this is our pandemic with, uh, with the masks and, uh, and the game over. So before I continue, any, any questions? Alex? Um, would you, I guess you could do this not just in Zoom, but if you had, let's just, 
a, a group of venues, you know, lots of uh, theaters or other venues, you could theoretically project this to the, let's say, 10 venues or 15 venues and have people interacting using their phones. I mean, would you, would that be a viable thing as opposed to totally a, a, a virtual background, a virtual uh, uh, distribution? Totally, totally, absolutely. Uh, we've been we've been considering that, and we've been talking to um, some partners. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's definitely very interesting, and people interacting, and people. The the, the difference there is, I I need to find a, a creative solution where when people see themselves on on screen. There's something that ignites in them mm -hmm. that they're in a show and there is uh, during this check of OS after after New York Times came to see there was a thousand people on Zoom and we, we had to, like that's the maximum right. and and so they understood they see that there's a thousand people on Zoom and they're in the front with Mikhail Baryshnikov you know and so so it's something happens there yep. uh, in, in that in the scenario that you're talking about. I can't do that, but I'm sure there's a way to figure something creatively to figure something out. Well, you might be able to have a return video. It wouldn't be an individual, but you could have a return like over yeah. Zoom or something else from that theater back to or from that venue back to you. So you right. could somehow incorporate it into it, maybe have uh, audiences appear or something like mm -hmm. that. Interesting. Definitely. Courtney? Well, you're definitely transforming theater because uh, I think in most theatrical situations, the actors definitely don't don't want to have the audience interact with them. Uh, otherwise, it's called heckling. And uh, they, other than hearing them applaud or laugh and react, that's great. Uh, and, and I would think that your script, if you're going to present uh, scripted information, that um, uh, you would have to... Uh, allow for improvisation because you don't know what the audience members are going to contribute or say unless they have scripted lines to deliver and are there plants in the audience that are characters in the play. So progressing the uh, plot line along has to, the play has to have some degree of improvisation. You, you said you're always going to end up at the same place at the end. Uh, for the that actors, play. The actors that, have to figure out how to. For that specifically play. Guy for that play, have to guide for that it play. Yeah, uh, that, that that's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that that's a great question. Uh, the thing is that each play is different. Will Natasha, uh, the uh, audience actually chose what's going to happen to her, and depending on what they chose, there was like a fork in the road, and uh, the actress could go one way or another. Uh, with the play about Chekhov's life where he there's a lack of agency and during the pandemic this was the prevalent feeling we created as much playfulness and as much deception of choice and then at the end you realize that what you chose what you choose actually has no impact pre-programmed or, or chosen exactly ahead of time, exactly, exactly well there was something back in the 60s called Kino Automat which was a Czechoslovakian uh, uh, film that had decision points throughout and it was a tree type based it was all film projections it was not live in this case but the audience then voted on which direction they wanted the story to take and it would branch off in a different direction and they would play a different you know it was it was handled by having two projectors up and depending upon which way the audience voted it'd go this direction or that direction so there were several tree branch points and it always ended up with the same conclusion like yours did. So that there's a way to handle it like that, to manage the tree choice to end, end you up in the back in the same place. 
But uh, in that situation, the audience was just voting. They weren't actually making up the lines. They were just voting on which direction the story was going to take. Is that how yours is constructed as well? Or, is, or do they actually the suggest, suggest uh, options for the characters to, to do? It depends on the show. It depends on the show. Uh, for example, in this in this particular show, they're voting. So this show is called Witness, and uh, it is it, it's about uh, it is a documentary show about uh, the um, uh, Saint Louis, which is a ship that left Hamburg in 1939 uh, with 937 Jews uh, trying to find safe harbor in Cuba. They had visas for Cuba, and then Cuba didn't take them, and then America didn't take them, Canada didn't, and they ended up going back, and most of them died. Uh, so, but what what I found interesting uh, when I was uh, this was in, in um, collaboration with the Holocaust Museum, and what I found interesting was these people that came on the ship and were writing diaries and and uh, uh, letters and reading papers. I found we we were able to find all these materials, and what was interesting is that they. Um, what they did on this ship is uh, create talent shows. So imagine after Kristallnacht, uh, people running away. Some of them have already been to concentration camps, so with bald heads. And what are they doing on, on, on a ship trying to escape death? Talent shows, you know? So uh, it was, so this actor was live. We created everything in Unreal, uh, uh, used Eximetry uh, uh, and streamed it live uh, with, um, and in, in this case, they were voting on each talent show, uh, on each number, and uh, they, they were asked to come on uh, with drinks because they would be toasting. It's as if they're part of this boat, uh, a part of these unwanted people uh, in this place voting and enjoying their time before realizing that things are not going to go great. So I wanted them to, I wanted them to feel that. Uh, there were three acts in this show, and uh, first act was the talent show. Second act was uh, a seven-minute uh, uh, audio-only piece recorded with binaural microphones. An audience was asked to sit with their right ear to the wall, to, uh, to the door, and uh, I don't know if you've ever experienced binaural microphone. You, I'm, actually, I'm sure you have. It was the head that we rented and we uh, did some recordings. It was, it was, very, it was probably the most impactful things. I, we asked audience to turn off the lights uh, in the room and sit with the right uh, ear to the door. And it was basically like they were sitting in a, um, what is it called? Uh, the room on a ship. Uh, what are they called? Uh, the room Cabin? The... Cabins, 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 exactly, sorry. Uh, English is a second language. Uh, cabins, they, so, so they were sitting in cabins and hearing what's happening outside when they arrived in Cuba and people didn't want them. There were riots, there were newspaper articles, there were people walking by, somebody trying to, to commit suicide, somebody laughing, and all of this, and a, and a psalm uh, as well, and all of this created this, this atmosphere. Uh, also, it's a way to get into the house of the audience member and change, change the way that they perceive the content. Because now, now you, are, you are influencing how they are perceiving this. 
And a lot of people had done this because their uh, their cameras also were uh, it came up on the uh, on the screen on the stage, uh, and so they were they knew they were a part of it. You could see that a lot of them have wine glasses. They're toasting, and uh, and then later in the show, these pictures uh, their their pictures come up in picture frames, and audio and actors. The main character talks to them directly, and uh, so this was the unreal Unreal boat, uh, Unreal Engine boat, um, and I wanted to show you a, a small clip of what happened. We were doing the show during the Colleyville siege uh, in Texas of a, a, a synagogue. If you remember, this was a year, year and a half ago. Uh, uh, there was a siege in Texas. Uh, a, a terrorist came in, and and so we saw this uh, on our. In, it was on our TV here, the studio, and the actor was preparing to go on stage. And there's a there's a point um, in the third act where the actor goes into a like a cabin like this. He goes into the cabin and sees the audience members projected on walls around him. And this was a live moment, um, also done through axiometry. And we decided to pull in the live news feed and project it onto the four, four walls of the cabin um, because this is what the show is about. It's about anti-Semitism, it's about hate, and this is happening right now. So some audience members actually found out about what's happening on the news through doing this show. Wow. And uh, this, is, that- this, this is the moment here. Uh, I had to go through a lamp because the, it's it's from recorded to live, and here he's in the he's in the room, and this is the live uh, live news. Oh wow! And you said that this was done through Unreal Engine, correct? Unreal Engine Unreal and Exymetry, yeah. Okay, and so now Igor, there are questions piling up here. We're going to transition so that you can answer the panelists. We've had a great time asking you questions. Now it's time for our producers. So Robert, go ahead. Next question. Andy Carluccio from San Francisco writes, Igor, all of us at Liminal were so excited in 2021 when you shared your success story and how you use Zoom OSC. What lessons from projects like yours should producers consider in a post-pandemic world? I think it's above my pay grade. I don't know about <laughs> lessons. Uh, I, I don't know about lessons. It's 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 about it's about thinking outside the box. It it create it created a, uh, the pandemic created a great challenge, but with it a, a great opportunity uh, to to affect pe- more people. I mean, there is no way that uh, I could have traveled to fifty five country with these with these shows. We just did a big presentation, by the way, a big presentation in Israel on witness, and I was talking about this story that I just told you. Uh, and there was 150 rabbis from uh, from uh, United States. One of them raised their hand and said, "That was me in Colleyville. I'm the rabbi." Uh, so that experience is not possible mm-hmm. without the reach of of something like this and being live at the same time. I guess that's the lesson. It, it has a huge opportunity. There's a huge opportunity in that, and it's very difficult to do because nobody knows how to do it, and I, I don't know how to do it. I'm just I'm just constantly kind of iterating. So, Alex, 
Would you say it's some of it is scale in the sense that, you know, an, you know, something that like this might be in a smaller theater in, in uh, Broadway, but you could find small groups of people all over the world that accumulate into very large audiences um, that would otherwise not, you know, possibly make something where you don't have to tour, but you're touring to them, um, you know, all, all the time. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. And just new friends that we've built uh, uh, all over the world. Uh, with um, for for this show, we had a person uh, that is a as a specialist in eximetry come from. Um, oh my God! Not not Netherlands, uh, Europe. Um, we had a designer in uh, the Unreal designer was in Brazil. Um, other designers were in Ukraine, uh, and so forth. So we, it, it was a team co that collaborated from all over the world, and it's it's also something unique. You you don't get to ex to exchange experiences and knowledge with people from all over the world when creating something like this. Next question from Kirsten Ostenkamp in Germany. What are new possibilities that the virtual production world offers with regards to how to affect and interact with theater audience? Um, there's there's all sorts of ways. Again, it depends on the show, uh, on the shows. It, there's no there's no prescription. I'm, unfortunately, I can't give you a way to do it. I'm just showing you some examples of what I came up with in order to solve the problems that I was facing. Uh, there, the, unfortunately, there's no prescription. It's the only prescription is figure out <laughs> the meaning of the show and try to s uh, structure the interactivity around the meaning of of what you're trying to get across. Um, and also, I believe that audience playing a role uh, in, the, in the show is, is a very important aspect. I have not been able to do it without that. Otherwise, it just turns into a film. So engagement is a huge part of uh, going back to this question of like just the interactive elements, making that really something that is the possibilities for for others to for their growth correct next question l wilson spyro in berlin writes it's always interesting to hear different folks use our software in different ways can you explain a bit about isadora's role in your virtual production workflow so Isadora didn't play a role in in this specific uh, in these productions that I've spoken of so far. It it had in the in the latest two productions because uh, in the latest two productions were mixing the virtual audience and the real audience and in person audience. So the pandemic had finished and we we were doing the next. We did this off Broadway show Orchard at the Bershnikov Art Center and it was at the same simultaneously in person and virtual. And when we are mixing in the signal that's in person, we used a lot of Isadora 
uh, and Birdog and Netgear. Birdog is a huge supporter of what we're doing um, and, and also Netgear 4250 uh, all the way for NDI. We wouldn't be able to do what we did without, without those tools. Um, and then once the camera, we use 12 cameras on this show, and then once they come in, we alter them with Isadora. They, um, the audience get a separate uh, kind of direct connection to the, uh, to the actors backstage when actors prepare to go on. In this particular show, it was, uh, you, you, you come to a real estate auction and, uh, and it turns out that it's a Baryshnikov art center that, uh, that, uh, that is being sold off. And uh, at the end, the audience uh, auction off, uh, the audience are par- part of the auction uh, for the NFT of, of the Baryshnikov art center. So they, they have a separate, completely separate narrative of what the, uh, compared to the in-person audience. And the difficulty with that, and what I learned from that in this case, you cannot do it simultaneously. Like you have to have two different tech periods for in-person show and the virtual show because they're completely two different shows. And they have, uh, in, for, in, in this show, the audience played. Um, uh, in this show, the audience played uh, auctioneers or war auctioneers, uh, and the in-person audience were the ones that the stuff that was auctioned off was taken away from. So there was a connection between the virtual audience and the in-person audience. The in-person audience knew that there's a virtual audience, and the virtual audience knew that there's a, a in-person audience. So, next question. Kirsten Ostenkamp from Germany writes, what are advantages of simultaneous live virtual and in theater production? And how does that inform live and in theater experience of the audiences? I just spoke to that a little bit. So, for example, in this in this case, when the uh, when these two audiences have different roles to play, when something is being auctioned off in real time and is being taken away, which is, by the way, the meaning of the show, the orchard is the the orchard is being auctioned off in the show, in 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 the in the text. Um, uh, and we feel like something that we love is being taken away from them, uh, from from us. Uh, that makes the point very vivid. And it's, it, the advantage is, the only advantage to anything that we do creatively is whether it makes an impression, whether it makes an emotional impact, whether, whether hearts beat. And, Next question. Oops, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. That's all. Next question. John Fisher from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, was seeing a particular piece of technology, the aha moment for conceiving your adaptation of the orchard. Or did you have the vision for it first and had to figure the tech out later? Uh, their uh, processes at the same time. So uh, I try to research, first of all, watch this show. Second of all, I've gotten so many answers uh, from this show. Uh, unbelievable, uh, but uh, true. Uh, but also just uh, geeking out on, on new texts that are, that are coming out. And then at some point when, I, when I'm thinking and considering the concept of a new show, ideas pop into my head from the things that I've uh, read or seen and so forth. Uh, so it's, it's kind of a, a process that you have to be aware of the tools that are available and then, and then find the best tools to express what you're trying to express. 
Next question. L. Wilson Spiro in Germany writes, how did the onstage and offstage roles for virtual production differ from the in-person theater? Example, SM, LX, SX, video operator, performers, director, designers, TD. What new roles did you have to add? What roles oh did you not need? <laughs> Oh, there's so that's such a great question. There are so many. First of all, I've never worked with you know virtual uh, designers and and TDs and their time and 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 programmers like the the Unity programmer, you know, he had uh, a deadline of when the show is opening. For us, we need that. Uh, two weeks before the show opens, we need the final so that we can rehearse in it. So there was a, a there was a ton of learning in terms of uh, in terms of how different um, uh, 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 different professions how they think about their their product, uh, right? And 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 learning to translate that. So there 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 was a ton of new uh, new kind of learning and material and and understanding that needed to happen and it's been so exciting and so interesting because people in different in different professions i find fascinating because they think in a completely different way which informs me and makes the experience much more interesting and much makes what i create much more interesting because it's unexpected for me next question Dave Kaufman from Vancouver, British Columbia. Igor, do you think that hybrid theater has a future to it? Is it too much of a compromise to try to engage both remote and in-person audiences? Well, the thing is that I'm trying to not make it a compromise. I'm trying to make it something that you can't play um, uh, operation game on Barishnikov in person. You can only do it virtually. Next question. Next Talak, question. Talak Lopez Waterman, Brevard, North Carolina. What was your delivery method? Just Zoom? Also YouTube? Did you sell tickets? Yes, we sold tickets. Yeah, uh, all of these uh, tickets sold. Uh, so we use Millicast uh, slash Dolby for delivery. Uh, this part of the show of the orchard, where uh, so the idea is that it's it's being sold. It's it's a it's a uh, special place that has these magical rooms, and you're on a virtual tour of a property that you want to purchase, and you end up in different rooms. So when you're walking around, each individual uh, audience member is able to walk around the space and go into different rooms and exp and play, interact, play operation on Barishnikov. Um and there's a, there's a point to that but um, this was done using pixel streaming and then uh, when they transitioned into the one of the rooms in this building was a theater and they come into the theater and watch a live performance and then this whole place is auctioned off and we lose everything so uh, this in this show it was pixel streaming and also uh millicast which we've been partnering as well with and they're a huge supporter and all our shows including uh witness and the latest show gaga uh we did using millicast so Next. but but there's but there is exchange there's there's uh there's interactivity so you it wouldn't be possible on youtube because of the latency of 20 seconds millicast is uh, just like zoom Next question. 
from L. Wilson Spiro in Berlin. How many different pieces of software did you need to combine in order to execute your virtual productions? And what were they? So it depends on the production. Uh, we use Eximetry, Zoom OSC, and then Zoom ISO when it uh, when it came out. Unreal, um, uh, OBS, uh, uh, and mainly QLab. QLab is the one that sends signals to everything. Um, and uh, Burdock Central uh, is what we used um, for some of the camera switching. By the way, this is volumetric capture and uh, people were clicking to uh, turn uh, Bereshnikov around. But anyway, uh, so, so there was a and volumetric capture software that we were playing around with. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's mainly, and Isadora, of course. Uh, I think that's mainly it. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. There's an improv theater in Austin that allows users from their homes do skits as part of the show. How could this work in general while maintaining the quality of the shows? I don't know. Next question. Talak Lopez Waterman, Brevard, North Carolina. Did you ever do remote DMX for remote lighting control? Uh, no, uh, the only thing that we are doing, uh, because everything is controlled through QLab, including sound, microphones, and lighting, uh, we send OSC commands to the lighting console, um, and it ac activates a, a, a queue. Um, I guess we can send it from anywhere. Um. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael, impressive pixel art in Unity. Did you use the asset store for most of the scenery or create it yourself? Well, the boat was totally created ourselves, the boat and the uh, traveling in the ocean. Uh, you, you can see some of these trailers uh, on our website there. I think the, the artists have done quite an amazing job. Um, uh, so, uh, this one, for example, the one that we were looking at was something that we took on the assets and we changed it because our orchard was kind of blue and this was our... Uh, and this was uh, this was our color tone. We, so we took the uh, existing asset and changed it. In the windows, by the way, right now it's a picture of Chekhov. But there were, uh, as the train was riding, there are pictures of people's faces uh, riding by. <laughs> so uh, they they signed up. Uh, they activated their cameras, and they would be active in different parts of the of the story. Actually, in this particular room uh, of the building, uh, you could be a passenger or a fly that's uh, in the way of uh, Mr. Bereshnikov there, of, um, and you can choose to be the fly. So when we switch to the fly, and the person that's recording this is going to switch to a fly any moment, and uh, and then the fly gets uh, killed at the end there. Wow. Next question. Kirsten Osterkamp in Germany, what transformational possibilities and advantages of virtual and hybrid theater do you see emerging in the next two to five years? Uh, I think I hope that uh, people uh, continue to iterate. And, and the most important thing, I'm, I'm so glad to be on this show because uh, sometimes it feels lonely. <laughs> Uh, I'm not talking about personal life. I'm talking about professional. Uh, in terms of 
I would love to have connection to, to, to people that are trying to do this and trying to figure out a way to impact audience virtually. I think there was one huge success uh, in, in, at Witness uh, where we could see their cameras. There's a moment where, um, where uh, in the show, in the uh, anti-Semitic show, the, uh, in the... <laughs> anti-Semitic themed show where there's a Yom HaShoah which is the siren of commemoration of uh, the Holocaust and when I see people on Zoom in or in their windows and there there's a commemoration that means you have to stand up and I see old people trying to trying to get up from their chairs that breaks my heart because because it's happening live because something got them to move and it's, it was important enough for them to, to, to stand up. So finding moments like that that could, be, uh, that could be possible in the virtual is the most important thing, in my opinion. Next question. From Alex Lindsay, Novato, California. Why do you use Millicast over Zoom or other platforms? Control. Uh, I think the quality is excellent uh, in, in Millicast. Uh, what else? Uh, there's also, uh, I could stream at, uh, in the latest show uh, in the Gaga, we had a bunch of different cameras that people could choose to activate. And, um, and it's a part of their player. It's a part of their built-in player. So you could, uh, you could broadcast two, three, four cameras at the same time, and it comes up in their, in, in their window, and they can choose. And then when you stop the OSC command for, for transmitting that uh, broadcast, the, uh, the main screen just gets bigger. So it, for, for, it's just, um, it's more flexible. Well, Igor, thank you so much. This has been a jam-packed hour with so much. We'll definitely have to have you back so that you can go even deeper, even into the artistic aspect of the things. And what we typically like to do in this moment is just any additional words of wisdom that you want to share with our community. So uh, I would like to, first of all, share... I don't know how to... Let's see. Oops. Well, that closed. Sorry. Um, I, I wanted to share uh, a link to um, to the network uh, uh, diagram and how everything was connected for the orchard, if that's of interest to you guys. And also, there is a volumetric video that you can play on your phone of Baryshnikov uh, dancing around that we filmed. And um, you know, it's a, it's an AR, so you can put put Baryshnikov on your desk if you'd like. And I just wanted to share that as well. Thank you so much, Igor. Yes, I see in the chat even um, Kyle just even mentioned that they're building a show similar to what you're talking about and would love to talk. So we have to Absolutely. We definitely Absolutely. have to have you back. Igor, founding uh, founder and producing artistic director of 
Arlequin Players Theater and Zero Gravity. Thank you so much for being with us here today. And for our producers, thank you for your phenomenal questions, our panel for all of your insights and responses to those questions. And of course, our back-end team without which this would not be possible. Tomorrow, Tuesday, we are talking about Raster versus Vector Cage Match. Raster, which one? What are they? You want to be here tomorrow for that second hour. And for the rest of the schedule for the week, head over to officehours.global. And we have gone. Let's see how far we've gone today on the Taluk Traversal. So that's 69,327 miles. That's 111, uh, 111, 570 kilometers. That's more than 549 million bananas for scale. That's 2.8 times around the earth. Thank you all for watching and we will see you in after hours. Bye. Thank you. That was great. You was really good. Thanks. Thank Thanks, guys. Abilities. Well yeah. done. Hey, go, you Perfect thing for an improv group. I California. When are you in California? <laughs> yeah. Come to California. I got a big stage. <laughs>